Hello everyone and welcome to the first of this year's Glasgow Film Festival podcasts and I'm so pleased to be joined once again by Anthony Baxter. Hello Anthony. Hi Ali, thanks for having me on. And we're here to talk about your new film Eye of the Storm and could you tell us a bit about Eye of the Storm? Well it follows landscape painter James Morrison who lived here in Montrose for many years uh, but he had a very colourful life. He started as an artist in Glasgow and then uh, after that uh, moved to Catalyme where he was a contemporary of the late great Joan Erdley's but spent the majority of his life he here in Montrose uh, which is how I first came to know of him uh, but he is a, a well-known landscape painter but probably you could be forgiven if you if you haven't heard of him. I, I had not heard of him before I moved back to Montrose, which is where my mother is from. And it was my uncle, uh, Dennis Rice, who appears in the film as well, who um, had said to me that James was going to uh, give me a call after watching You've Been Trumped, the film I made about Donald Trump building a golf course resort mm -hmm. in Aberdeenshire. And uh, James actually wrote to me after watching the film and said how moved he'd been by uh, the destruction of the landscape of these prize dunes in Aberdeenshire to make way for Donald Trump's golf course uh, development. And he invited me over for a coffee and Dennis came along as well. And it was at that uh, meeting that um, he was talking about how he you know, documented the landscape as well and mm -hmm. would often paint uh, scenes where, you know, uh, the landscape was under threat. For example, trees being pulled out of the ground, um, plans like that, you know, and he would capture the landscape beautifully on, on canvas. And during that meeting of um, the first meeting I had with him, uh, he was explaining that his sight was deteriorating. He was having problems uh, with his eyesight and was worried um, about going back to painting at that stage. He'd, he'd actually given it a rest for a while. And uh, so I asked him whether he would, if he went back to painting, uh, be open to the idea of me actually following him uh, on film and he was open to that and so I just started to do some exploratory filming with him and uh, BBC Scotland uh, commissioned the film on the basis of that early footage and mm -hmm. then uh, Creative Scotland as well, Screen Scotland came on board later um, but it was really in his description of his uh, trips to the Arctic as well, which he made several during his life and, and captured the landscape there that, that made me think that there was also a, another dimension to this story that would be really terrific cinematically. And uh, so that's how it all started, really. And you shot this over um, a two year period, is that right? That's right, yes. So um, it was during that time, really, when James goes back to painting, uh, he picks up his brushes again, and I, I had the privilege of being able to follow him during that stage. He then, you know, I would spend the odd day with him here and there. I'd just call him up because I'm only a, a couple of miles away. Um, and I would call him up and just say, uh, would you be open 
to me coming and, and, and filming with you. And, and James was very open to it and, and excited about it, actually. I mean, I, I think he, he felt it was, uh, I think we all have that, that, that experience, don't we? If we have elderly relatives and they tell us these amazing stories. Mm. And often I, I think with my uncle Dennis, for example, here, um, who's, who's 88 years old, I'd love to record these stories and get them down on tape because once once they leave us, they're gone, those stories and those. And so there was a, an element, I think, of that that he appreciated being able to to put on record some of his life experiences. And he also had has a great sense of humor, lovely anecdotes that when he's telling them to you, you, you can visualize them. And um, so I, I also, I'm sure we'll talk about the animation in the film, but that was one of the things that I felt was, was, was a possibility to bring to life some of these anecdotes and some of the things that, that James had experienced in his life. That's what I thought watching it in, that you, uh, you kind of, locked out with the way he tells a story. I, almost in that kind of great Glasgow storytelling tradition. You know, he's got that kind of ease and, and um, he takes great joy in telling the stories as well. I thought that was fantastic. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, you know, he would be able to remember great details of these stories and the people that he'd met because he was always painting outdoors. He never painted from photographs. I mean, latterly in his life, he would, as you see in the film, when I was filming with him, he'd be inspired by some of his earlier works and he'd go back through catalogues because he wasn't, as he said, allowed to paint outside anymore yeah. um, because of his, his fading eyesight and other health issues. And uh, but in his early career and, and right up until recently, really, he was painting outside. And so when he was in uh, Glasgow painting and his tenement uh, uh, paintings, people would come and chat to him and he would recount those tales. And also in Glasgow's art gallery, there's that lovely story as well that he recounts. Um, where somebody comes in and, and essentially criticizes his painting <laughs> uh, and but they don't know it's the artist they're standing next to and he has this lovely turn of phrase um in it throughout and and then when it comes to the arctic when he's talking about his uh, dramatic trips there where he shipped over from montrose these canvases to the arctic to paint on i mean it's extraordinary really to think of that i mean right in the middle of nowhere incredibly difficult part of the world to get to uh and uh, having his canvases boxed up here in montrose air airlifted out to the arctic so he could paint and there as well he would be talking to the people he was he was with of course and so all through his life he he'd be very happy i think to share his knowledge and experience with people as he was carrying out his work yeah i mean he was a teacher as well wasn't he for most of his life and that comes across yeah. very much as almost as much as he loved to paint he loved to teach and share his experience and share his knowledge it it seems to be essential to who he was that's right yeah there was a big uh, over over a decade he was a, a a uh, teacher in Dundee and and also taught uh, uh, in Stonehaven as well 
and so yes he and he talks about how much he enjoyed teaching and and it, it certainly comes across there's something about watching uh, an artist at work as well that i think is fascinating it's a bit like when you're filming a singer songwriter in a recording studio or a chef in a kitchen there's there's something about the way that you have an insight into how uh, this this person operates and um, has these skills that are just so unique and, and built up over so many years and very open and willing to uh, share that knowledge and professional ability with you and the audience and the viewer. So he uh, very quickly, I think, grew accustomed to me being in the room and it was just me filming with him um, and so I was able to develop I think that kind of intimacy that you can in that that level you know when you've just got one camera I had one other camera up on this this uh, platform that he has in the studio which was was useful to have but it was it was good as well because he would get quite tired mm -hmm. and um, you know so I wouldn't want to film with him for anything over an hour really in a stretch and then we'd break, have a coffee, and um, his partner Anne would come into the room, and and we'd have a chat, and then I might do a little bit more. But sometimes he'd say, "Look, I'm just, uh, you know, I think I'll I'll leave it for today," and um, then I would call him a couple of days later, and he'd be really happy to to continue as well. And I think that was the thing for him. It was almost possibly a therapeutic thing going through the the filming of the documentary it allowed him to share these experiences um and to talk and to have company and i think one of the things i've noticed during the whole covid pandemic is you know from my elderly relatives is uh, how much how important company is and how um telling stories and sharing experiences and life experiences um, with relatives or friends is, is crucially important and of course so many people denied of that at the moment. Yeah I think that's a really interesting point my parents have recently have both been for their vaccines and it became a big day out which gave them a lift because they were they were going out with purpose and actually yeah. you know, to meet other people and I think that is something that's that comes across. Yes so, no absolutely. You have uh, all the footage that you've shot and I'm interested in how you begin to edit that footage into a story, if you like, how you decide how you're going to tell the story. Well, I think the main thing was starting uh, at the beginning after we see the first scene is actually in the art gallery in Edinburgh in January of 2020, yeah. where he is staging what turned out to be, very sadly, his last exhibition and the preparations for that. Uh, but to have a little introduction to um, his his weight as an artist, in a way, I felt was quite important at the beginning. And then to go back to James in the studio painting and beginning to tell his life story. Um, you know, he was the only son of a, a, a fitter in the shipyards in Glasgow. So he came from a pretty, I think, obviously decided pretty early on, that is not what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and when I was looking back actually through some of that extraordinary footage of the shipyards in Glasgow, you realise just what a life that was for those men, and they were all men working there on the on the on these boats and 
you know incredible noise and 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 sheer hard work every day and James decided quite early on that he wanted to follow a very different path he went to Glasgow School of Art and he recounts a couple of stories from his time there and then as he describes you know the thing for him was the landscape that he saw every day were the tenements of Glasgow and that's that became his first kind of introduction I suppose to landscape painting <clears throat> and he also says that you know people were never of interest to him uh, mm -hmm. as, a, as a subject I mean his paintings never had people in them and people would sometimes say oh why don't you put a couple of people in there and he describes in the film how they're an irrelevance you know they're they're they get in the way really of what the landscape is doing and what the landscape is about. So he, um, after Glasgow moves to Catalina, as I mentioned, was a contemporary of the late great Joan Erdley there, who of course focused entirely on people really yeah. in Glasgow. When she was in Catalina, she did landscapes too. And I think he talks about there's some old film footage that you see of him in Catalina uh, as a younger man presenting a program about Joan Erdley not long after her death um, and he talks in that I think about how probably he felt he needed to leave Catalina because she was such a, a, a huge figure at the time mm -hmm. really in the artistic world um, uh, and was had an exhibition in London that he describes and he then decides to leave Catalina, move to Montrose, and he actually lived um, uh, nearer to Ferry Den, just over the river from where I am. And that was his home for many, many years. Um, and uh, so in a way it was just following, it was quite easy on one level because it was just following the story of his life. And then mm -hmm. he didn't have to mess around too much with that because it all kind of, you know flowed unlike some other films I've done where it, it you know that structure is really tricky um but here it was pretty chronological really mm -hmm. and that in comparison with Joan Eardley I think is a really interesting one because as you say they both kind of started painting the streets of Glasgow but Joan's famously have these children mainly children in, in her kind of earlier pictures and then they both go to Catalina and paint the landscape there and the seascapes and all of that stuff but what struck me with James Morrison's was it was the first time I'd thought of the Glasgow tenements as landscape paintings. Mm. There's no paint, and you go, oh, it's just a different landscape. And that's what he did so beautifully, it seemed to me, was to capture both. That's right. Uh, and I think those early tenement paintings of his, I, I absolutely love. Uh, they're, they're tricky to find nowadays um and there are a few uh, uh, around publicly but they are really stunning pictures and um documents of their time and so when he's then in the landscape out in the landscape he's got this incredible ability to uh relay texture and tone and detail and some artists you might see who use a lot of detail can sometimes then possibly lose the spiritual context of the work. It, it, sometimes, you know, you can find there's too much detail, but James, through his um, 
beautiful depiction of skies and tone allows the viewer, I think, to um, go on a journey with him. And you see the sky and the landscape in a very different way after experiencing a, a James Morrison painting. And you know, I find that when I walk around here in Montrose and, and look up at the sky, I think of it as, as my Uncle Dennis says in the film, that there's a James Morrison sky. It, yeah. it has a kind of... Um, a feeling almost as if it's you know, Dennis described it as God imitating Jimmy Morrison, and it's a little bit like that. You look up and you see these this 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 beautiful texture um, that that James has has uh, grasped and accomplished in on a, on a on a canvas, and allows you to to see that in in nature. So it, it's. It's actually a really helpful thing, I think, at this time in this, this COVID period where we're all locked up in our homes and, you know, really missing friends and family and not being able to uh, do things that we'd like to do. Um, and then being able to walk outside and see the landscape, which in James's world has no people. There is no pandemic. It's just the landscape. It's what the landscape is and always has been. And that is, is a helpful thing too, I think. And I mean, it is a visually stunning film. And it did make me wonder if the way that James captured the landscape influenced the way that you wanted to capture it in your film. Very much so, Ali. I mean... It's almost like I, I felt quite a weight to try and do the landscape justice mm. compared to <laughs> James's paintings. But anybody will know from visiting Angus or, you know, the west coast of Scotland where James painted too, that you don't have to do a lot other than turn the camera on and <laughs> you've got some incredible, incredible footage. And, you know, it 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 sort of helped as well, I think, by... I used some of Kareem Polwart's songs, um, which I always felt really complimented James's work. Um, and they help, I think, too, just to have that lyrical um, uh, addition to his work. And that, that can help the viewer too, possibly, I hope. I think you're right. I think uh, Kareem's music, like the James's paintings, hint at something bigger than all of us. You know, there's a kind of something going on that perhaps you can't it's not easily captured yes and you know it, it it's it's lovely as well to be able to bring other artists mm -hmm. into a film like this and that's how you know using kareen's music and then katrina black who did yeah. this beautiful animation in the film mm -hmm. um and being able to show her process too because Sadly, Katrina didn't get to meet James. She wanted to. In fact, actually, when we were filming here in Montrose, James had moved into a home at that point. And I was planning to go with Katrina to the home because it was before the COVID situation. And so we would have been able to go and see yeah. him, but we just ran out of time on that day. So she didn't actually get a chance to meet him, which was a, sh a real shame because... Uh, yeah, he um, knew of what I was doing with Katrina and, and um, he really approved of it because I think he loved the idea of another artist um, working and interpreting something. And at that stage, too, we didn't have that footage of him painting in the Arctic. That emerged 
after he oh. had died. And so um, Katrina did this incredible job of imagining James's um, trip to the Arctic and using his paintings as a backdrop, as a um, uh, the, the canvas on which she worked from, and using his uh, tone and his colour palette as an as a inspiration for her own animation work. And she does that beautifully, I think, with the Arctic animation, and then using James's tenement um, paintings as, a, as an inspiration for um, the animation in Glasgow, and then also his work in Catalina as an, an inspiration for a, a very short little scene there too. So there's there's a real um, journey, I think, too, um, as well with with Katrina, and and I think that uh, that helps to bring this creativity throughout the film is is what I was aiming for anyway. Viewers will be able to tell me whether it's successful or not. I'm sure. Well, I mean, the animation is, is a delight because you have him telling these stories and then with some of them, Katrina has uh, animated them and it just brings another aspect to it, I think. Yeah, that's right. It, it's, it's a tricky thing, animation, because you can... I've worked with it before on other films where it's in a title sequence or you're using animation to describe some numbers obviously in news reports you see that all the time or during the covid pandemic and it works very well because you're, you're almost expecting somebody to show you with some graphic what's going on and in a film it's a little trickier because you don't want to suddenly take the viewer out into a different world that they don't feel comfortable in and so you you you've got to try and meld it in with the film and so i think that's what we were what i was trying to do with katrina and uh she was a real joy to work with because she would be able to um interpret ideas and in a storyboard that i would send her and then you, when you're working with somebody who's on the same wavelength as you it's just so helpful because you could be going down into the weeds so easily on this kind of thing and finding that you're you're just not on the same wavelength that you know, you know you could be working with an animator who's maybe too whimsical or bringing a different kind of style or something to it that is interesting but just doesn't quite work and of course the other thing with animation is it's incredibly expensive i mean if you're if you're doing 25 frames of drawing for every second that's on the screen and you're going off on a different tack then that yeah. becomes an expensive mistake so it's important to to be on the same wavelength and to and to try and get it try and get it right and um, you know and and actually it was down to that support from screen scotland and creative scotland that we were able to to do that that extra layer to the film because without that um you know it wouldn't have been possible uh, so that was a, a really nice you know possibility at the time to be able to do that so um, at the beginning do you have an, uh, an ideal of how you want your film to be and then you've got to match that with finance and did you end up with the film that you kind of envisaged at the beginning no very different film i think in the sense that i mean the part with james was pretty much what i thought it might be in the sense that i'd done some early filming with him and so i knew how uh, and what a pleasure and privilege it would be to work with him on that one-on-one -on -one level um with the arctic 
material. I mean, early on, I'd applied to Screen Scotland for funding to go to the Arctic and to actually um, document James's journeys and adventures mm -hmm. there as a documentarian um, on film and possibly using some drama reenactment as well. And not only did it become very clear that that would be really expensive to do, I mean, to get to the Arctic, I then thought about possibly filming in the Highlands of Scotland during the winter uh, of um, uh, 2019, early 20, um, to do that. But uh, I then had this thought about animation and I had seen some of Katrina's work. Uh, an author friend of mine, Mike Nicholson, suggested I looked closely at what she had done um, with the horrendous disaster on the Isle of Lewis in, in 1918 when the sailors come back from the war, having survived the trenches for four years. And then the boat uh, they are on uh, goes down on New Year's Eve um, and dozens and dozens are drowned and she did this beautiful very moving short animation for BBC Alba on that which is well worth looking up on the internet um, uh, I think there's a trailer available still and you get a sense of that that uh, that painterly quality that she has yeah. and so I spoke with her and it just so happened she had the possibility of doing it too and then of course lockdown happened um in the end you know beginning of March and so we were able to work very easily in that sense of being locked down and working with an animator and Katrina's currently based in in Amsterdam and so we were able to um communicate you know easily enough on Skype and Zoom and 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 sharing um, her early drafts that way and so that in that sense it did turn out to be quite a different uh, idea to the original one but that that was sort of part of it and I think I'm, I'm really pleased that although I'd love to go to the Arctic one day <laughs> um, I'm really pleased with the way that aspect of it turned out because it, it, it sort of meant a lot to be able to work with her and to have that extra dimension to the film was a was a really important one. And I think it actually adds a bit of mystery to that trip as well, because the, he comes back and I think originally he wants to write about it, but it, it's almost too overwhelming a trip for him. It was like, no, I, you know, I, the thought of it brought him to tears almost. And I think yeah, animating right. it rather than filming it, you you can imagine it for yourself rather than seeing it. Yeah, that's that's true. I think, Ali, and um, I think as well that that it's a. I mean, I I really just am in awe, really, of what Katrina's done with that because it would be so easy to go off piste and to find it it sort of just not working. And I think that uh, it it really is is wonderful what she's created there. It, it allows you to enter into this this world this mystique in a way of his trip and uh, uh and then you you come back to him uh in scotland and so it, it and then when we found that early footage after he had died in in august of last year his son john 
uh, and I was quite advanced in the editing at the time, said, oh, by the way, I was just going through some of Dad's things and found this old videotape of, would you be interested in taking a look? <laughs> of course, of course I would be. And so, um, so that then emerged and we were then able to bring in a little bit of that footage into yeah. the scene too. So you're, you go into the animation, you then see him in situ and then you go back to the animation um and that works because Katrina had amazingly done the, this incredible job of just imagining what it would be like for him she'd got it pretty bang on I mean there were a couple of early photographs that she had but that's all she had there was just no other materials that she had to work from about the other people who were with him for example that yeah. kind of thing and the, and the setup it's an incredible um story that these I think there's four people originally, and you've got this pilot referred to as the Arctic Fox, who, um, with his bottle of whiskey under his arm, there's a picture of him there. And it just seems like something from such a different age, you know, almost Scott of the Antarctic kind of thing, in a small plane flying up to that part of the world. Quite incredible. Absolutely. And I think that's what it would have been like. I mean, who wouldn't want to experience that? I mean, an incredible opportunity for James to do that. Um, which all came out of a chance meeting at one of his exhibitions at the Scottish Gallery in Edinburgh, where he had 25 over his lifetime. Mm -hmm. And a philanthropist woman who suggested that he, he should go. <laughs> and, and he went and, uh, and so started this, this love affair, really, with the Arctic. I think he mm. was just mesmerised by its beauty and that feeling of being there in that wilderness. Um, with an, an untouched landscape and with global warming and all that we know now about the ice caps melting and that landscape not being here in the same form as it was when he painted it, it has an extra significance. And uh, he was actually being an unwitting documentarian um, of that landscape. He didn't go there to document melting ice caps or anything, but he, in doing so, recorded very clearly um, this landscape that doesn't exist in the same form as it did when he was painting it. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking it was almost like the ultimate landscape. He'd gone from the kind of closed-in streets and tenements that he was painting to wider, more rural Catalina, and you say then Montrose, but the Arctic is almost the ultimate, isn't it? I mean, That's if right. You're taking, if you're taking people out of the equation, then you're really taking out the equation. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you can't think of anywhere more remote and 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 people less than the Arctic, and so he didn't have to worry about not painting people there. Um, and yes, I, I mean, just extraordinary also to think of the technical challenges of working in those sub-zero temperatures. Uh, and obviously, anybody who who lives in Montrose knows that we you have to be prepared for all weathers all year round um something wet and something waterproof even if it's summer uh but in the arctic you're in this situation of having these extra dimension problems of paints freezing having to warm them up having to work if you're working outside working in those incredibly cold bitter conditions and not being able to just come in and put your feet up in front of a fire at the end of the day uh you know just living in a camp and going through that for for quite a long period of time 
uh, and so he uh, and and also then wanting to go back for more so that i think he just had a sense of adventure and spirit that that really comes across through his stories and through his work because those works wouldn't exist if he didn't have that sense of adventure yeah and there was a sentence i think it might have been his son that said it but i'm not sure it says the, the desire to be creative was what drove him you know it wasn't like the idea that this is my job or anything this is something that you know was inside him and that they had to do yeah that's right and you know i think his creativity is so apparent throughout his life whether it is through his canvas paintings but also his uh or on board or his paintings of uh that he shows us of um uh where you you can open up a door into a painting and um he has this playing with things like 3d in that sense and uh, even in his house, his house was was littered with with wonderful work um, of sculptures and people who inspired him as an artist too. And so there's there's a real sense, I think, of him um, absorbing creativity and then being able to relay it in his own work in a way that was just absolutely unique. And I think the nice thing about it being able to bring this film out is that a lot of people you know won't have heard of james morrison and as i say i mm. i hadn't before i moved uh hit back here to where my mother was from and then you 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 kind of realize quickly just what a talent um he was and what a hard worker he was with a huge volume of of work over his lifetime and although there are famous people who may own his paintings, it has an access accessibility to, to us all, really. You don't have to be an art lover or an artist to appreciate, you know, his, his incredible interpretation of the landscape and the sky. Yeah. Well, I didn't know him, and I've got um, friends and family who are in the art business, and they, they knew the name, um, and some of them did know his work, but it's that kind of... If this film does nothing else, it brings them to a, a wider kind of audience, which is fantastic. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's the hope. And I think, um, you know, once we, and, and fortunately as well, we've done this audio descriptive soundtrack too, so that people with impaired vision, um, in a, you know, through, through the RNIB support as well, we've devised this audio descriptive soundtrack, which, allows people who, like James, were suffering from sight loss to um, appreciate and enjoy his paintings through an audio um, platform too. And that, I think, is, is something that he'd really appreciate because uh, he understood how terribly difficult that was to lose his ability, that, that it was so important to him, of course, as an artist, to be able to see and to hear his paintings interpreted I hope will bring his work to an even bigger audience and we've done a link up with art galleries and uh, independent cinemas that are closed due to the Covid pandemic around the country where through their own VOD platforms or through art galleries putting it on their websites that people will be able to choose that that audio descriptive version of the film as well 
um, that's all before the BBC broadcast a, a shorter version of it and then the longer version at a later date. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, I couldn't have you on someone who's made films about Donald Trump and not ask <laughs> you about the final days of that regime. What did you make when you were watching, you know, the kind of fall of Trump, if you like? Well, I mean, when the uh, riots were unfolding at the Capitol, I was feeling this sense of shock at watching what was happening, but not surprised. Yeah. You know, I think that there was a feeling that everything was leading up to that kind of a moment. And it was interesting seeing the footage of Donald Trump and his son Trump Jr. Uh, in the marquee ahead of that rally, which led to the Capitol riots and having a, a celebration uh, inside this marquee. And it really reminded me of the early days of following Trump coming to Scotland and the marquee on the many estate where he was there celebrating and the lies that were told there uh, that, that had devastating impact on the environment mm -hmm. um, here in Scotland. And of course, during his presidency, the thousands of lies, according to the Washington Post, that were told, and to then see the devastating effects that that had. And so it was sickening, of course, to, to watch, and then also to, to see him failing to condemn it. Um, but I think that that is something that those of us who have followed him over a, a, a long period of time have come used to, in a way, his inability to con ever concede that something might not have gone according to his plan. Mm -hmm. um, and he would never say sorry or, or ever um, admit that he'd made any kind of a mistake. Um, and so um, I think as the world is breathing a sigh of relief and taking stock at the moment, um, I think we have to really use this opportunity to learn lessons. And my fear is, is that at least with another golf course, um, given the green light uh, in Aberdeenshire at the end of last year, that those lessons, you know, may not be learned. And, you know, there has to be some accountability here of uh, the um, deception of this, this this lie that was told to the people of Scotland and to uh, politicians here. Uh, but then, of course, on a, on a much, much bigger scale, as I always felt that the Scottish story was a microcosm for what could happen on a world stage if Trump became president. And to really learn lessons from that too, because it has such a huge impact, whether it's uh, the, the lies told about the science surrounding COVID, uh, or whether it's other conspiracy theories uh, that are given weight by Donald Trump's backing or failure to um, discourage that kind of uh, falsehood that, that um, goes haywire on the, on the internet, then I sort of feel that we're in this very precarious situation always. So that's my thoughts on that one for the moment. And uh, I, I just sort of feel that, yeah, we're in this this kind of pause period um, and that there is an opportunity to take stock and learn from this. Yeah, and that's exactly what I thought, um, having watched your films, was that this is actually consistent behaviour. This is not 
some you know um, move away from the norm. This is this is kind of how he's always done it. Yeah, that's right. Well, Anthony, thanks so much for talking to me today. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, thanks, Ali. No, thank you for watching the film and and for um, talking about it as well. Really, really pleased to, to be here and do that with you. And best of luck uh, with the film because it really deserves to be seen by a wide audience. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thanks for that. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Mm -hmm.